Turn in your copy of the scriptures, if you would, to the book of Romans. Back in the book of Romans, but skipping ahead, please, to chapter 14. While you do that, I'm going to make a prediction. I do not claim to have the gift of prophecy, but I'm going to make a prediction. And that is this, that the Major League Baseball season of 2014 is one that will go down in infamy because of two words, instant replay, instant replay. Despite the fact the technology has existed for decades to be able to look back at a play for an official ruling, and despite the fact that almost every other professional sport on the planet has employed the use of said technology for these reasons, baseball has managed to remain unaffected by technological advances for years. A call is made by an umpire, a fallible, flawed, fallen, finite human being serving as an umpire. Safe out, fair foul, ball strike, and my personal favorite, which is the balk, was made by an umpire both aloud and with a hand motion, and that was that. And for years, for years, the only way that advances in technology uh, changed the game for, for viewers at ho- was for viewers at home or in a broadcast booth. If you were watching a game live, uh, you saw the call made once, you saw the play made once, and that was that. Now, it changed a little bit if you could find someone sitting near you with a radio who was listening on a walk, because the hardcore fans will do that. They'll be listening to the game on their uh, Walkman or on some sort of a radio. I remember sitting in Shea Stadium uh, next to guys with radios with antennas that were like a mile long, and they're listening to the game being called on the radio, and they're listening to the announcers talk about the play. You could look at him and be like, did he get that? And be like, he blew the call, bro. He blew the call. And you can find out things like that. Then, with the advent of cell phones, you can call your buddy at home and say, was that a good call? Was that a good call? Yeah, it was a good call. You can call. But as far as instant replay was concerned, redoing a play in the game and looking, or looking at it again for the second time, that only started, sadly, sadly, this year. This year. Now, with the advent of instant replay in baseball, the play can be challenged. And gone are the days where the umpire may not be right, but he is never wrong. And then they're reviewed by a team of four or more umpires in an office in New York, and they communicate the final decision with the umpires at the game, and the call is upheld or overturned, thus making an already long game even longer. I mean, can I get an amen? I love baseball, but let's get her done. And now it's even longer because we've got to look at plays, and it's it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. And we go down now on the list of other sports where we say, I don't like the call you made. I'm telling my mommy. And we go to instant replay and it's not cool. Now, I think baseball personally reflects life more than any other sport. Now, maybe it's a little too early in the day for you to get that deep. But if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it another time. But I think the game of baseball reflects our life more than any other sport Um, But that won't be the best use of our time today. For our purposes today, I bring this to your attention to simply say this. Some calls are hard to make. Some calls are hard to make. Now, at a baseball game, the people on the opposing sides of the call don't think so, right? People on the opposing, they're like, that's not hard, he's out. It's easy. He's obviously out or he's clearly safe. Like it's not hard. He just blew the call and everybody swears that it's not hard. It's just clearly as they see it. And, and we all, everybody's, we're, we're an armchair umpire or we're sitting in the stadium. And of course, everyone in that stadium, 45 plus thousand fans, we all have a better view of the play than the umpire feet away from the play. He blew it. He obviously blew it. We all swear by what we really believe to be true. Now, 
But not everything is really easy to decide and decipher. Some calls are hard to make. A fly ball sits in left field. You can almost make the call before the play is over. It's easy. It's textbook. It's classic. The ball is going to be caught. The batter's going to be out. There's not much room for debate there. It's pretty cut and dry. But just like not every call in baseball is as easy to make as a textbook flyout, not every call in life is easy to make when it comes to uh, decisions we make with our walks with the Lord. Not everything in Scripture is as cut and dry, and quite frankly, Scripture doesn't directly speak to absolutely everything that you may be looking for. You can't find the original uh, word for, you know, internet in, in the Greek. You can't look up in your topical index about social media in the Greek. You, know, you can't, there's many things that have changed in our life that you're not going to find within the scriptures directly, but you will find in principle. Some are pretty cut and dry. Thou shall not steal. If it's not yours and you want it, you can't take it. That's pretty cut and dry. You've got to ask the owner. If you do, you're stealing and that's not allowed. Thou shall not murder. Well, if you want to kill someone in cold blood, you can't. Thou shall not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Don't lie. Want to say something that you don't know to be true about someone else? You can't. It's it's pretty cut and dry. And I know there's nuances that can make it interesting and all, but it's pretty cut and dry. But what about matters of life that the Bible does not speak directly to? What about the calls we need to make in life that we don't have a specific chapter and verse to look at and receive direct, undeniable instruction on? Should we work on Sundays? Should we dance? Can a Christian smoke a pipe? Should Christians wear makeup? What about jewelry? Can we trust in God and purchase insurance at the same time and not be in conflict with those two things? Should we play a game of cards? What about shoot pool? Can Christians drink alcoholic beverages? Should Christians attend movies? Should we eat food in a church building? Should Christians engage in mixed swimming with members of the opposite sex? And the list goes on and on and on. Now, I think it would be really fun if I could, like, read your minds or hear what you're thinking. Well, actually, it would be very confusing. It would be very loud right now. But, but, it, but it would be fun because as I, if you're anything like me, if you were reading that list and I was in the seat and you were up here and you were reading that list, I would be rattling off answers in your head. And I know some of you are doing that. I know it, you know. And you're like, yeah, no, yes, yeah, not if you love Jesus, yeah, no. <laughs> because you've thought through these things and even though, even, right? I mean, you did that. Yes you, yes, you did. Yes, you did. Because you've thought through these things and you have your own opinions on them and, 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 and may you act in them to the glory of God. But these are things that the scriptures don't speak directly to. And then you sometimes say, they do so. They don't. Yes, they do. They don't. That's what I like to call canonizing your convictions. Within the canon of Scripture, you're not going to find the sure, uh, the, the sure and certain cut and dry answer to these questions. You're going to have to put together different things that you know from the Word of God to then make a God-honoring decision as to how you would act in these certain ways. And when you say, yes, it does, you're canonizing your convictions. You're canonizing your convictions, and we ought not do that. These are matters of conscience. Why? Because God doesn't say anything about them directly. That's why. That doesn't mean God doesn't care about them, because he does. It does, however, mean God didn't care, can we say this, enough to the point to inspire the writers of Scripture to write specifically about these things. 
So today what we're going to do is we're going to take a jump back into the book of Romans and skip way ahead to Romans chapter 14 uh, to look at a sermon that we're calling The Church and the Law of Love. It's not about the individual items on the list I just read out to you. So if you're sitting here and you heard me read that list, you're like, oh, which one's he going to talk about? I can't wait to hear. We're not going to talk about the items. And if that's a little bit of a letdown, I hope you stick around. We're not talking about the actual items. We're not going to talk about Christians and dancing or Christians and alcohol or Christians and movies. Uh, regardless of what side of the debate you're on, here's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about how you receive the person on the other side. How you receive the person on the other side. How do you treat the person on the other side of that debate? Regardless of where you stand. Regardless of whether you're more lenient or more conservative. Regardless of whether you're more fundamental or more whatever. I mean, regardless of where you stand, how do you treat, think of, and receive the person on the other side of the debate? We're going to get beyond the matters and talk about the people. The people. The people. It's not about the issues themselves. Today it's about looking over the issue to the person and how God would have us treat each other as we live this life together in an effort not to please ourselves and not even to please others, but to please our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do now, since we haven't been uh, in the book of Romans for quite some time, and certainly not this particular portion, I'd like to read the entire chapter of Romans chapter 14. So uh, open up to Romans 14. I will start in verse 1, and Lord willing, read through the entire chapter. And this is what the Word of God says. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. 
Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Father in heaven, we come before you today asking you to add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of your holy word, Lord, that you might be glorified as a result of our time together, that your people might be edified. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're taking notes, and I'd encourage you to do so, particularly if you're used to being very dependent on an outline and you see the rather robust outline you've been given today, you may want to jot some things down. I want to show you three reasons we need to play nice. All right, three reasons we need to play nice. Now, I have four kids, uh, 10 and under. And uh, it may come as a surprise to you that sometimes Sarah, uh, my wife, and myself, we would disapprove as to how they treat one another. I don't know if that's shocking to you, but sometimes they might be treating each other in a way that we think to be uh, conduct unbecoming of our family. And oftentimes what we'll do is we'll not just talk to them about what they're doing, but we'll, maybe you can even finish the sentence. Might get down on one knee and say, buddy, that's your brother. Son, that's your sister. Sweetheart, that's your brother. Why? Because we want to remind, this, remind them of this. It's not just about the action. It's about the person. One of the reasons we need to play nice is this. We are family. We are family. Get up, everybody, and sing. We are family. Now, that's not to say that the action is actually wrong because we're family. You know, like if my son was doing it to the neighbor boy... And I said, buddy, don't do that. Don't hit your... Oh, it's not your brother. All right, that's fine, son. Carry on. Follow through the elbow. Like, it's not, it's not that, that then the action is right. Yep, punch him out. So I thought it was your brother. It's not. It's the neighbor kid. No, it's not that that then justifies the action. But there's an added reason. There's an added reason I want you to do that. It's not just that it's unkind. It's also that this is your brother. This is your brother. We are family. It's not just someone else. We shouldn't act like that to anyone Ellipsis, dot, 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 especially your brother. Looking at our text today, Paul reminds us who we're dealing with. The people in question shouldn't define themselves by the issue they're talking about. This is family. So take a look at some key words and phrases in the text and take, take note of them. Maybe underline or highlight them in your Bible. I find that to be helpful because I have my Bible with me more than I have sermon outlines with me. So you may also want to take note of them in your Bible. Take a look at verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. If you see in the text there, it says weak in the faith. Okay, that's not to say that he is, his faith is weak necessarily, that he needs to do a faith workout, but he is a weak man who is in the faith. A weak sister in the Lord who is in the faith. So we're talking about people who have an area of weakness, but are in the faith. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Suffice it to say, we are what? Family. They're in the faith. He's speaking to fellow believers. Skip down to verse 4. 
Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for what? God is able to make him stand. God is only going to make him stand if he's part of his family of God. God is his heavenly father. We are family. Look at verse 6. He who observes the day observes it what? To the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. He who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. So he's doing this to the Lord. He's thankful to the Lord. We're dealing with believers. Look at verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Now look at verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? There it is. It's that pastoral, even paternal reminder of why you... Why do you judge your brother? This is your brother. Why do you judge your brother? It's not just why do you judge people. It's not why are you so judgmental. Why do you act in that way? Why do you judge your brother? So in verse 13, when Paul says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, one another, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way, He is obviously not addressing matters related to justification, but to sanctification, right? He's he's talking about, he's talking to people who have already been justified, people who have already been saved. So when he says in verse 13, uh, don't put a stumbling block, let's, let's not judge one another anymore and not put a stumbling block in our brother's way. He is speaking to how we treat one another within the family of God, for we are family. Now, I'm not saying that this principle can't be applied to how we relate to the lost as well. Certainly it can. But what I am saying is what Paul is talking about here is how we, uh, how we treat the weaker brother or sister in the Lord. Now, verse 13 uh, may surprise you that it comes after the 12 other verses. And if you look at verse 13 alone by itself, you can make it mean a whole host of things that it was never intended to mean, Right? If you just look at verse 13 and it says, let's not judge one another anymore, but resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Just look at that verse apart from its context. Look, the Bible says don't judge one another. Who am I to say, who am I to judge, right? We should be more tolerant. Uh, Who am I to say what love is? A man and a woman, two men, two women. I don't want to be a stumbling block to people, so I'm tolerant of all. That's not what the text says. Now, this is a plea for tolerance from Paul to the believers. But it's not a plea for tolerance just for anything and everything. And it's not also a plea for tolerance, quite frankly, of anyone. We are what? Family. He's talking about how we treat one another within the confines of our church family. What I've hopefully shown you is that the text is assuming we're dealing with family, church family, fellow believers, the called, the saved, the adopted. We are family. We see elsewhere in Paul's writings him dealing with particulars in order for one to be saved. I mean, his, his letter to the Galatians dealt with their legalistic ways. His letter to the Colossians warned people against pop philosophy and culture being put in a mixed bag with the gospel. But that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is how we, the church family, deal with one another when it comes to these matters. How do we deal with one another as strong and weak believers? Here Paul is dealing with those who are saved. Number one, the reason we need to play nice, we are family. Number two, uh, we can't have stricter standards than God. I tried to think of a pithy way to put that. There, There you have it. We can't have stricter standards than 
God. You can't care more about something than the Lord does. Look at verse 3. Let him who eats, excuse me, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Why? For God has what? Received him. Or the ESV says welcomed him. It literally means God has accepted him. We are family. If you look at verse 3, there Paul is talking to both people on both sides of the debate, right? So there's this person in this case who's a, a, he is weak in the faith. He's weak in the area that he thinks that God wants him to only eat vegetables and not eat meat. So what he's saying is, you know what? Let, look at verse 3. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Okay, so that's the uh, person who eats anything. Don't let him despise the vegetarian. But then he flips it around. He says, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Just looking up with this like disdainful frown saying, you just don't care. You've, you've gone way left. You've gone way liberal. Either way, two people on both sides of that debate are not to be judging one another. Why? Look at the end of verse 3. For God has received him. And the fact that we're family means that we share a common heavenly father, a common saving faith in Christ, and a common sharing in the bond of Christ's love, and a common, listen, acceptance by our heavenly father as we are. Therefore, if God hasn't made what one eats or what one drinks or how one acts on a certain day a hindrance to be accepted in the beloved, we surely shouldn't either. Does that make sense? God accepts somebody uh, based on... He he didn't care how they ate. He didn't care what they did at the time when it comes to these matters of conscience. He accepted them. Far be it for us to say, yeah, well, that may be good enough for God, but not for me. Like, doesn't that sound a little weird to you? Well, God may have accepted him, but uh uh-uh. Not me. Not my family. Not based on what I know. Not based on how I feel. Not how how my daddy raised me. Not on my friends. Paul reminds us, hey, look, God has received him. Don't judge him. God has received him. And once again, in verse 3, Paul is speaking to both the strong and the weak. He's addressing both. See, this portion of Scripture is not solely addressing one person preferring another. We'll get to that a a bit later as the text does. But Paul lays a foundation here that's basically like, before we get into the nitty-gritty details, let's remember first things first, okay? Before we talk about the topic, before we talk about meat versus vegetables versus uh, abstaining from alcohol versus enjoying a glass of wine, before we talk about these things, let's remember first things first. Number one, we are family. Number two, we've all been accepted if we're a part of the church family, right? If we're believers, God has received us. God has accepted us. And look at this third thing we see in verse 5. Three reasons why we need to play nice. Number one, we're family. Number two, we're accepted by God. And if you look at verse 5, look what Paul says. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Look at this. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. See, not only do we know Paul is dealing with church family, fellow believers, but we know he's dealing with things the Bible doesn't speak to. How do we know this? Well, if God had something to say, Paul would have pointed it out, right? He wouldn't have said, hey, you guys be convinced in your own mind. He would have said, well, God has said blank. He would have quoted some scripture. Oftentimes, Paul quotes Old Testament scripture. That's not what Paul says here. Uh, What Paul says is, you know what? Let each be convinced in his own mind. Do your thing. Make a decision that would be God-honoring and be fully convinced in your own mind and live to the glory of God. If God had something to say about it, he would have pointed it out. 
He wouldn't say, this is open to interpretation if God had interpreted for us already. But instead, Paul says, you decide. He doesn't point them to Scripture. So he's talking about issues here that are not expressly laid out in Scripture, similar to the list that I read to you earlier in our time today. He says, you decide. And right there, the fact that Paul says, hey, you decide, that should tell us something. We are family. We're accepted by God. And while we want to honor God in all that we do, the things Paul is talking about, in this case, a teetotaler, vegetarian, sabbatarian, is not as important as the fact that we are family and we're accepted by God because God hasn't spoken to these matters. Does that make sense? People before the issue. Family before the issue. The fact that we're accepted by God comes way before the issue that's on the table. So Paul says, hey, figure it out and be fully convinced in your own mind to the glory of God. And then he brings it home in verse 12. Look at verse 12. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. He reminds us that it's, it's not about pleasing others, but about pleasing God. Each of us will give an account of himself before God. And that's unescapable. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're told. Each of us will give an account of himself before God. Uh, Elsewhere in Scripture, Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Do you know what a snare is? It's not just a drum. It's a trap. It's a trap. So there's a balance here, right? We want to live in a way that is uh, helpful and edifying to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but not so much in a way that my life is defined by what you think of me and what I think of you. The fear of man lays a snare. We'll become trapped up in that, trying to please everyone in our life because everybody's got different standards, everybody has different preferences. The fear of the Lord lays a snare, excuse me, the fear of man lays a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So Paul reminds us in verse 12 in our text today that we're going to all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's ultimately who that we are going to give an account of of ourselves to before God. Then in verse 13, look at that. It says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Now, this section or chapter could just end with, if you look at verse 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. And that's where we just end the chapter, end the sermon. We could start singing, we are family, and, and, and all have a great time. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. But Paul cares more about just not judging. That's not what happens in the text. God wants us only to not judge one another when it comes to matters of conscience, but also not hurt one another when we disagree. So it's not just, hey, you know what, put up and shut up. You see someone who has a different opinion of you, just, you just keep your mouth shut. Oftentimes, as we read throughout Scripture, it's the matter of the heart. God doesn't want us to even internally judge the believer, judge the person within the family of God who sees things differently. So it's not just about how to, how to put on a happy face and how to just be nice and just have couth and be all nice and just make like you don't really care, but inside you're like, that person's a heretic. God cares about the matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It's not just the not judging that matters, but the not hurting as well. Why? Well, 
Up until now in this text, in the first dozen or so verses of Romans chapter 14, Paul has addressed both the strong and the weak. In other words, uh, he has said three things to both. Number one, we are, hey, you want to eat meat, not eat meat? Fine. You want to drink wine, not, not, eat, not drink wine? Fine. Whatever. whatever. You want to say that's, that one day is the Sabbath and, or, or you want to say all the days are alike? Fine. But I want you to know three things. Number one, we are family. Number two, that means we're all been accepted by God even though we have these different beliefs. And number three, these things are secondary matters. How do we know that? Because God hasn't spoken to them. That's why in verse 3 it says, Let not him who, who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. God has received him. But now Paul's going to wrap things up by primarily addressing the strong. The rest of the chapter is going to be primarily to the strong when it comes to what to do when there are conflicting values. And quite frankly, that used to bother me. Okay, Because I used to think, you know what? He calls these people the weak. Right, the pe- and who he's calling weak are the people who are uh, who, who are scrupulous over over secondary matters. They, they're not in the scripture, they're not in the text, but they really give a care about things that God obviously didn't care enough about to have written down in the text. Why do the strong need to adjust to the weak when, quite frankly, the strong have the more biblically sound position? Why don't the weak embrace scripture and just you know come to the light? Like, like wh- why do the strong have to prefer the weak? And here's why. For the weak who have these views that are not scriptural, but they wholeheartedly believe them, whatever it's on, whatever it's on, it's not just about a matter of preference, but it's a matter of conscience. And in their conscience, they wholeheartedly believe that for them to act outside of whatever, fill in the blank, for them to, so in this case, for this guy to eat meat, he wholeheartedly believes he would be sinning against God. So for me to ask him to make that adjustment means I'm asking him to act against his conscience, which means I'm asking him to follow along, to consciously, willfully, in his mind, sin. Does does that make sense? Where for me to just meet this guy and say, you know what, I'll have a veggie bowl, that's me giving up a right that I have, giving up a freedom that I have, that I enjoy, but preferring him. So the moves are different, right? For me, it's just at best an inconvenience, Right, that, 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 that's just the worst thing could be. It's like, ah, eh, would have preferred meat. He doesn't like meat. I'll have a veggie bowl. For him to get the steak bowl, or for him to enjoy a, a piece of filet mignon wrapped in bacon, cooked, cooked medium rare, just, just, just right. Just so when you cut it down the middle, it's pink, little, little bloody on the inside. You with me? I'm probably, I'm probably offending someone. I'm, I'm sure I'm offending someone. For him to do that would cause him to feel as if he's sinning. Does that make sense? For me to stay, hold the steak, and I'll just have vegetables, means I go without steak. Which one's the bigger leap? It's a lot easier for me to give up my freedom to prefer my brother than for my brother to do that which he is fully convinced in his own mind and heart is wrong before God. See, in the case of Romans 14, we have two people who love Jesus. One's a vegetarian and one is not. Implied in the text is that this is more than just a dietary preference, right? This is not because they think it would be healthier. But this is one, you know, one person thinks this is the right and godly thing to do. Now, it can't be proved in Scripture, but he really believes that this is the right and godly thing to do. He believes in justification by grains and carrots or or something like that. So for him to adjust to the stronger man's standards 
and have a steak wrapped in bacon, like I talked about, would be for him to violate his conscience. But the strong believer making the adjustment wouldn't be violating conscience. He would just be giving up an opportunity to enjoy the freedom that God has, uh, that God has blessed him with. Now, on a side note, I want to say this. I don't feel like it's, I think it's implied from the text, but it's not often said enough. The weak are to grow strong. You, you, you know that, right? The weak are to grow strong. Uh, we're told in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus himself grew in favor and wisdom with both God and man. Luke 2.52. Uh, Peter tells us in Second uh, Peter 3 and verse 18 that we're to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6.10 says we're to, we're to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The fact that these people are called weak in this area should clue you into something. We're to prefer them, but do you ever notice how oftentimes it's the people who are more scrupulous about things come out feeling like they have more of a corner on truth or, or they care more about righteous living or care more about holiness, but that's not implied in the text. At the end of the day, the people who make more of these little fussy details about things are called what? Weak. The point of the text is not that the weak are better than the strong. The point of the text is the weak will not be made strong by the strong person ramrodding their freedom down the weak's throat. Does, does, does that make sense? But at the same time, that doesn't mean that someone who wholeheartedly believes something that is not reflected in Scripture, like that guy's totally cool. That's not what the Scripture is saying. Does, does, does that make sense? We're just not to judge one another. But if you're weak in an area, if you hold to a viewpoint or a perspective of something about life that can't be proven from Scripture, that's not good. So I would encourage you, if you're weak in this area, if God would lead you to a place to search the scriptures and be made strong, it shouldn't be made strong by someone else ramming their freedom down your throat. But we should want to be strong in the, in the Lord. We should want to be strong in the word. And the person who holds to weaker views, meaning views that are not scriptural, but are more traditional or historical, that person is not the winner. Does, does, does that make sense? It's not the person who's more fussy about these things is like the winner at the end of the day. The weak are to grow strong. The fact that the strong are to prefer the weak doesn't mean the weak are right or godlier or care more about holiness or righteous living. It simply means that the strong are more able to prefer the weak because, quite frankly, well, we're what? Strong. So even though I have the freedom to do something, even though my older children may have the freedom to do something, they may not be able to do it right now. Why? Because a younger child is here. But I'm allowed. It's not about what you're allowed to do. That's your brother. We are family. But I'm allowed. But last time you said I could. I'm sure these conversations only happen in my home. But, but, <laughs> but I'm allowed. You said I'm allowed. I, I'm, I'm this age. But that's your sister. It's not about what you're allowed to do. It's not about flaunting freedom. It's about preferring the weaker brother, preferring the weaker sister. Kind of new to the whole fireworks scene, but man, do I like blowing stuff up. I didn't grow up, it was really, really cracked down on in the 80s back in New York. And uh, now being out here, we're, uh, you know, in Kentucky for the last eight years and people... I mean, they'll blow up anything. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. It's like, let's just watch this thing go boom. And it's really fun to celebrate freedom. We just celebrated freedom uh, this past weekend. Hopefully you enjoyed your Independence Day celebration. And it was a lot of fun. Freedom. America. It's great. 
Um, how many of you would agree with me that you enjoy fireworks, but um, like at uh, midnight on the 5th, <laughs> the 5th, they maybe should stop. Would you just raise your hand and tell me I'm not alone? I love me some freedom. Love me some boom boom. Lots of fun. Light it up, up, up. That's fine. It's midnight. Shut it down, down, down. And there's a point where celebrating your freedom and flaunting your freedom can be offensive, right? I'm trying to sleep. My kids are trying to sleep. It sounds like a war zone. Freedom! And I'm inside like reloading. Like it's not good. It's not about whether or not we have the freedom or not. It's whether being overt with that freedom would be offensive to others. Fireworks aren't wrong. They're awesome. They're lots of fun. Lots of fun. 1 a.m., not fun. 1 p.m., I mean, won't see much. It's pretty bright out, but they're fun. Earlier in the evening, lots of fun. Yeah. But there's a point where your freedom will be offensive to other people. It's my right. I go to America. It's my right. I'm free. I'm a Christian. You can't, you can't prove that it's wrong. You can't prove that it's wrong. You just think it's wrong. You're weak. God's word says it's not about the issue. It's about the brother. We are family. So there are practical principles of application that we see as we close out this chapter that might happen if you trip your brother. Uh, verse 13 says, uh, don't cause your brother to stumble. Now, if you're the older brother or the wiser brother or the stronger brother, look out for the weaker brother. We need to care about how we walk through this life with one another. These things matter. We are family. We want each other to grow, to change, and to walk. And if someone is weak in an area of their faith that isn't sin, those who are strong ought to bear with the weak. Now, let's take a minute to put into perspective what Paul has in mind when he's penning these words, or what the Lord is intending for us to understand from this passage from the term stumble. Oftentimes, people will use uh, the term that they are offended. It happens a lot in the church. Like, that, that choice, that I, the fact that she wore that offends me. The fact that he spends his money in that way offends me. I'm offended. You know what I mean? That offends me. I'm offend- I can't believe that they spend their money. And I can't believe they would see that. But I'm offended. I'm offended. Well, if it wasn't to you personally, you, you gotta like build a bridge and get over it. Like you can't be offended by by other people's life actions that have nothing. It offends me. It offends me. This isn't talking about. Well, it doesn't offend me. It causes me to stumble. Ooh, Bible word. I'm cornered now. I've been caused to stumble. Why? Because I'm really offended now and I'm stumbling and, and, and that person's decision, when they, I'm offended, I'm offended. This isn't about just people being ticked off or annoyed about how people live life. That's not what Paul is talking about. This isn't about everybody else getting themselves busy and making sure they read all their Facebook news feed and saying, oh, 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 look at this, look at where they checked in, look at what they had to eat, look at what they did, look at how they spent their time. There's another Bible word for that, busybody. Scriptural word. Need to get busy doing something else. That's not what stumbling here is talking about. What stumbling here is talking about is that someone who's come to a conclusion in their life that God would have them do or not do something, that other person who is stronger in this area, exercising their freedom, caused them to go back on their decision and therefore sin. Does that make sense? So someone has decided, you know what, for me, I used to be a meataholic and I'm trying to repent from being a meataholic. I'm not going to eat meat ever again. For me to do that, I just, I'm a glutton. I just fill up on the stuff. 
I'm checking it all away, and I'm, I'm going to just eat veggies. I'm going to just eat veggies. Okay, that's fine. Because I think for me, it would be sin to eat meat. It's not scriptural, but for me, it would be sin to eat meat. Fine. Then there's the rest of us over here who are glad that God made cows out of steak. And we look over at that guy, and we eat in front of him, and he's like, you know what? Pete, Pete loves the Lord. I know, I know it would be bad for me to do this, but he loves the Lord. I ought to do it. Do you, do you see the problem? It's not about whether he's offended or whether he's, oh, I can't believe he would do that. It's not about us, you know, getting all like, Ugh, about things. It's about my action causing him to go back on the wisdom that the Lord has granted him, and therefore he sins. He stumbles. He falls. Does that make sense? It's not about... It's not about, you know, us stumbling over just being annoyed with one another. We, he, he would be caused to stumble into sin. So let me ask you a question. What do you care more about? Your family or your freedom? What do you care more about? Your church family or the rights that you have? Because if we know someone is weak in a certain area, we shouldn't be overt about the freedom that we have that could cause that person to stumble. Does that make sense? So quickly as we close, what I want to do is I want to give you five things that may happen, five things that may happen if you cause your brother to stumble, taken out of our text today as we close very quickly. Uh, Number one, you might grieve your brother. Look at Romans 14, verse 14 and following. Paul says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Do you see what he says? So he goes out of his way to say, I'm not preferring him because I think he's right. He hasn't won me to his side of the debate. I, I, know there's nothing clean, I know there's nothing clean and unclean in and of itself. It's, just, it's meat. It's veggies. It's food. He said, I know, I'm convinced by the Lord there is nothing unclean of itself. But look at verse 14. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're not walking in love. So it's like, I know. So you're looking over there at the, weak, at the weaker brother and saying, well, I, guess what? I know it's not wrong for me to eat this, so I'm just going to eat it. <laughs> you can't convince me. You can't prove it from the text. But you're not eating in love. You're not walking in love. You're not treating him lovingly. I have the right. It's not about freedom. It's about family. He's weak. Buddy, that's your brother. That's your sister. You might grieve your brother. If your brother's grieved because of your food, don't eat that food in front of your brother because he'd be grieved. Well, I just need to know that you'll never eat that food again even if you're not with me. No, you, no, you, need, you need to get over that. I won't eat it in front of you and I won't flaunt my freedom. I'm not going to set off the fireworks at 1 a.m. And I won't eat in front of you. I'm not going to shove it down your throat. I'm not going to force you to accept me. But I'm going to give up my freedom because I love my brother because we're family. So therefore, I'll give up my freedom for you. And, we hang, and I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to think, oh, here's the veggie freak. Could be enjoying steak right now, but instead I got a veggie bowl. At least the guac is free. <laughs> Chipotle fans. Five things that might happen if you cause your brother to stumble. Number two, you might destroy your brother. Look at verse 15, the second part. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. It's like, oh my gosh, I could destroy him? Well, again, the weak brother sins when by seeing the strong brother's behavior, he's influenced to act contrary to his conscience. So when you're exercising your God-given right and freedom encourages the weaker brother to violate his conscience, 
you must prefer the weaker one and refrain from what you'd otherwise be permitted to do. Why? Because he's your brother. We wouldn't want to lead him into sin. We wouldn't want to lead him into destruction. Doesn't mean you have to re- you're not supposed to rearrange your life for, the, for one person. That's people-pleasing. But it's like, you know what? I love this guy so much. He's my brother. She's my sister. I'll, I'll gla- family comes before freedom. Yeah, I'll gladly give up this, this freedom so as to not cause this person to stumble. I'll, I'll gladly do that. I, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to, lest I destroy them. Number three, you might ruin your witness. Look at verses 16 and following. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the fireworks illustration, right? Boom, boom. Wow, that's pretty. That's really cool. Nine o'clock. I'm thinking that's pretty. 12 midnight, 1 a.m. I'm thinking, wow, punch me in the face. It's really loud. That's keeping me up. I don't like it anymore. Same thing. The firework hasn't changed. The hour has changed. The day has changed. It's not the fourth. It's the sixth. I'm okay. I'm okay. It's not that it's unclean in and of itself, right? But the circumstances have changed. Do not let your good be spoken of as evil. I loved your fireworks like three hours ago. I hate them now. They're evil. We love the freedom that we have in Christ, right? But don't let it be spoken of as evil. Because if we just flaunt it and throw it around and we live overtly in a way that we're just defined by our freedoms, we're just defined by everything that we can do because you can't prove it from the text, you can't prove me wrong, we're going to hurt someone. Does that make sense? We're going to hurt someone, and they're your family. Buddy, that's your brother. Even if what you're, look at verse 16. Do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Even if what you're doing is perfectly permissible and allowed, and you could prove it with Scripture, don't put yourself in a situation in which that which is good, like honestly, scripturally good, could be spoken of as evil. You've got to think through those things. Number four, you, you might hinder the work of God. Look at verse 20. Oh, my goodness. If I flaunt my freedom, I can hinder the work of God? Well, look at verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. You might hinder the work of God. Verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of, and you fill in the blank, Food, freedom, movie, whatever that is. Don't destroy the work of God. We're family. Look next to you. The brother and sister in Christ, that's your family. Let's not destroy that person. Let's not hurt that person, lead that person into sin because they will be tempted. He shouldn't be tempted. He should be strong. I know. But buddy, that's your brother. Look at me. That's your sister. Don't hinder the work of God. Don't destroy the work of God. And finally, number five, in closing, verses 22 and following, don't flaunt or denounce your liberty. Verse 22, do you have faith? Have it what? To yourself. Do you see that in verse 22? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is of sin. So as Christians, we're not beating our chest. Look what I can do. Look what I can do. I'm not legalistic. Look what I can do. I have freedom. Ah, uh, Christian, freedom. Yes, America, I can do this. You can't prove me wrong. You can't prove me wrong. You can't prove me wrong. Do you have faith? Verse 22. Have it to who? Yourself before God. I shouldn't be characterized or known 
by my freedom to enjoy these liberties, I should be characterized and known by the freedom that I have from sin in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Oh, that's Peter. He's into beer. That shouldn't be. Regardless of whether I like it or not, regardless of whether I drink it or not, I shouldn't be known by how I partake of freedoms or do not partake of freedoms. Does that make sense? It should be Christ. When freedoms start to become my calling card, when it's all I post, when, when like all you post on Instagram is your summer shandy, calm it down. Enjoy it. Suggest it. But we have to realize that you realize that which you used to do in your backyard, keep it to yourself and to God. If you have faith, keep it to yourself before God. That's great. You're enjoying it, something in your backyard. You're enjoying the freedom you have in Christ. <coughs> Hashtag loving it. How many people just saw that? It's not a sin, but I have like 1,100 friends on Facebook. I don't know what all their histories are of all this stuff, so I try to limit that stuff because I don't know how someone else is going to see it. Is it going to cause someone else to stumble? It's not what are they going to think of me. It's is it going to cause them to stumble. I am fully convinced that this is right and good before the Lord. You understand? That's what Paul says. But is it going to cause that person to stumble? These are the things we think through. And finally, I want to call our worship team up to the stage as we prepare to sing and to enjoy uh, celebrating communion. I want you to look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. Because this is what it really all comes down to. Romans 14, verse 15. You say, yeah, I don't know about any of this stuff. With the strong, weak, all this other stuff, debatable things, I think everybody's way too lenient or everybody's way too conservative. Everyone's way too legalistic. Verse 15. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Here's what it comes down to. Do not destroy with your food the one what? For whom Christ died. And that's what we get to celebrate now as we celebrate communion. So I'm going to pray, and then we get to focus on what really matters. What really matters. And it's not these secondary issues, and it's not even primarily how we treat one another but it's the glory of God as we've seen it on Calvary's tree for sinners like you and like me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you uh, thankful for who we are in Christ, thankful for the opportunity that we have to uh, live with one another, Lord, in an understanding, loving way, and pray, Father, that you would uh, grant us wisdom and repentance in areas in which we need to change and grow. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.